Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Should the member of a Christian congregation be injured in a car accident, that person will likely be the subject of public prayers and hospitality. But if that same person suffers a mental breakdown, reactions will likely be much more complex and awkward. In her fascinating book, Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness, published by Baylor University Press in 2015, Dr. Heather Vosek examines how American Protestants have struggled with the problem of mental illness and how their relationship with it has changed over time. Vasek reveals in her well-organized and sensitive work the thought of five Protestants whose lives were deeply touched by mental illness, Cotton Mather, Benjamin Rush, Dorothea Dix, Anton Bosen, and Carl Menninger. Vasek then ends this well-researched book with a historically informed theological reflection of how Christians can help those afflicted with mental illness. Uh, I had a great time talking with Heather Vesek, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to our interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Heather Vasek about her new book, Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness, published by Baylor University Press. Uh, Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be talking with you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So I wonder if you could begin a little bit by telling us about yourself. Sure. I teach church history at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and have recently started also serving here as the academic dean. Before moving to Pittsburgh a few years ago, I spent most of my adult life in North Carolina, but I've also lived in Chicago, St. Louis, Eugene, Oregon, so across the country. And my work as a historian is second career. I spent my first career as an engineer and marketer at companies like IBM. And somewhere along the way, as I responded to a a sense of of working differently in the world, but still sort of trying to investigate what was going on, I realized there's some pretty good connections between my skills as an engineer and my skills as a historian in terms of having some sort of central question, posing a hypothesis, and then um, exploring and synthesizing sources to either prove or disprove that initial theory. And so I'm having fun figuring, uh, learning how to continue to deploy those old engineering skills and thinking about the past. Well, I imagine organizing a, a factory is, is perhaps similar to organizing a, a school, a department. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, there are uh, human systems are human systems. Um, and so uh, educating, in my case, women and men for a variety of kinds of ministries and uh, manufacturing computers um, are relatively different endeavors, but still take uh, still take people working together to figure out how to make things happen. And, and so how did you go from, I mean, you went from engineering to history. How did you settle on um, looking at Protestant Christian history? So I ended up looking at uh, Protestant Christian history in part because uh, my, my switch in vocation started with, uh, for me, a, a, a sense of call to ministry. And so entering into ministry, but then realizing that my desire to continue academic study and curiosity about exploring uh, questions about how, in my case as a historian, how Christians um, in the past navigated the kind of things that Christians in the present sometimes navigate and, and figuring out what we can learn from the past. I mean, my sense of the study of history in general is that it can help us make sense of the present, sort of slowing down to wade through the texture of the past, the complexity of the past can help us see more in the present. I often tell my students if they uh, if someone asks them a question about the past and they respond, it's complicated. Um, and, and then, of course, perhaps follow up with something, but they've really gotten it right. And so in, and in particular, my study in this book about Protestants and mental illness it is intended to do that kind of slowing down and wandering through the past. Um, and that's really rooted in some questions and realizing things like uh, how m- 21st century Christians and Christian communities respond to mental illness seems different uh, in ways from the ways that Christians respond to physical ailments 
and other kinds of suffering. And so in, in general, my interest is here is around how belief and practice shape one another, particularly around issues uh, of suffering. And so this fits into that, uh, that overall study. Excellent. And what is it by studying this? I mean, you, you kind of mentioned there that you're trying to make this story more complex, give people a better understanding of the, the details behind it. Um, what are you hoping to accomplish by revealing that complexity? So I think there are a number of things. I think um, I think simply insights about how, again, how about belief and practice shape one another. So this this inquiry started looking at how different Protestants in the 20th century had responded to mental illness. So looking at evangelical mainline Protestants, I mean, those those labels uh, certainly overlap with one another in some ways and realizing there were um, different trusts or distrust of secular care, for example, different propensities to dispense uh, spiritual solutions or physical solutions. Uh, I, I thought at first this project was going to be a project about the 20th century and outlining those differences. But as I started to take a look, I realized there was this whole back story that not only helped explain what was going on in the 20th century, but but might provide some insight for um, for those in who find themselves in modern Christian communities and thinking about how how we attend to suffering. What kind of suffering do we ignore? I mean, when I started this project, I started it uh, with sort of the flippant title about who gets a casserole, realizing <laughs> that, um, you know, you take your child to get my my son had his wisdom teeth out yesterday. So that isn't necessarily the kind of event that receives a casserole, but maybe a child who has tonsils out might prompt a casserole. But that seemed like a, a rarer occurrence in the case of checking a loved one into um, into a mental hospital because they were suicidal or um, suffering from bipolar. And so I, just my curiosity about how belief and practice and social stigma and um, professionalization shaped responses led me to try to figure out what that what that backstory might look like. Oh, excellent. And one thing for our, our listeners uh, that, that makes this book really interesting, uh, and I, maybe this is where your background as an engineer, industrial engineer shows up, it's really well organized. Um, uh, Heather walks us through uh, six, or I'm sorry, five chapters, each of which looks at an individual Protestant Christian uh, in chronological order who's trying to wrestle with this question, uh, with some of these questions that uh, Heather herself has just raised. So I wonder then, Heather, if you could talk to us about the first person um, in your your book, um, who's uh, Cotton Mather. Uh, even though you're, it's interesting, even though your book is uh, American Protestant responses, of course there there isn't an America yet. Right. <laughs> but right. We, we start with our uh, the background. So could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. So Cotton Mather is a name that many people know. Yeah, a colonial era clergyman, uh, a Puritan, sort of. At the at the end of the Puritan stream, on the way to being congregational, and he's he's most often remembered as a as harsh as as puritanical in the way that label is used. Um, Mather was a man of deep Christian faith, a keen interest in the natural natural world around him. He really looked um, to Scripture, but also to the world as a place where he could discover more about God and hope to share that that insight. And so he, he had this deep conviction that a deeper comprehension of the natural world would bring not only himself, but others in closer communion with God's will. And so most of his, his writing um, was geared that way. And that's particularly true about his writings about sin and sickness. And it's clear from his work, from his journals, from his more formal publications, that he was someone who cared deeply about the physical and spiritual welfare of those around him. He has really touching reflections in his journal, um, sitting by the bedside of, of his wife as she neared death from illness. And he, he talked, he wrote the first medical volume in the colonies. So as an early uh, clergy person, he held um, authority as an intellectual, not just as a clergy person. I mean, part of this story of Protestants and mental illness is a story of shifting professionalization and a kind of disruption of this broad clerical authority. Um, and as he talked about illness, illness for him um, was a given. It was something that all men and women could expect to face at some point in their life. And for him, mental illness was not necessarily different from any other kind of ailment. And so looking at mental and physical ailments was all for him 
trying to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. And again, make sense of evil and suffering in a way that could then draw the believer closer to God. He observed mental illness in the world around them. It's what he would have talked about as distraction or melancholy or madness. And we see in his writings that that his third wife, he lost two wives to illness. His third wife suffered from um, what we would pro- what would probably be diagnosed today as mental illness. He saw it in in his parishioners, in other clergy. And in the last years of his life, he wrote this this medical volume called The Angel of Bethesda, as I said, the only comprehensive medical journal in the American colonies. And in it, he is gathering together the wisdom and the insight that he has found in other medical volumes that he's heard from those practicing in medicine. Medicine is a very uh, loose field at this point, but he's he's bringing that together. Um, Religion and science are part of the same whole for him. And so it isn't that he is trying to do something different than his theological work. He, this is, he's using theological language as he talks about illness. He's using language of sickness as he talks about sin. And so all that's together. And the volume is um, both fascinating and somewhat horrifying as looking at really early medical history can be. Then he talks about illnesses from gout to toothaches to sore throats intestinal worms, smallpox, tuberculosis. And in all of it, he's assuming that attending to, to one's health and to the welfare of others is, is part of the Christian life. In, in that volume, he talks about what we would diagnose today as mental illness in, in two chapters, one on madness and one on melancholy. He talks about madness as a, as a dismal spectacle. So it exists. It's not very much fun, and it's something he describes as causing a number of reactions, things like rage, raging, shattered ideas in the brain, a confused manner. He talks about melancholy, what we we might talk about is depression as something that dulls and sours the human spirit. And Mather expects illness to be a part of life, and that is also true for him for mental illness. He says that every man is mad in some one point, that there's at least one point where reason will do nothing with him, and so this sense that all suffer. As I started the study, I was expecting particularly early figures to spend a a lot more time talking about things like possession, and demonic possession is the cause of mental illness, and even in Mather, we don't see that very much. And, and despite his uh, reputation of, of being involved in the Salem witch trials, he does talk about sin and illness. He's clear that sin causes illness, but it's not necessarily the sin of personal transgression. So he talks about the fall, the sin, he says, of our first parents as the first parent of all of our sickness. And he he really doesn't condone those. He doesn't at all condone or condemn those who suffer from melancholy and from madness. Um, It's there's there's mystery for him and why some might suffer. This this is not the case for him as he talks about venereal disease, where he is quite clear (laughs) that that those who suffer uh, deserve to suffer. And in, in this volume in the Angel of Bethesda, he refuses to offer cures and treatments. Um, in the case of venereal disease. So he does draw some lines, but the line is not drawn in mental illness. So there's not this sense of personal sin causing it. It, In response to thinking about the reality of mental illness, to observing it around him, he he writes, he he offers care to those to suffer. He encourages care of those who do. And as I said, he doesn't talk about mental and physical ailments very differently. Both are this prompt to turn towards God. He recognizes that there is medical treatment um, that might be of use, but he's but he's skeptical about the physicians of his era, and that's um, not surprising given given a lack of standardization in practice and the fact that he, as a incredibly well-read individual, probably had more extensive medical knowledge than most of those claiming to practice as Physicians, And he actually got into a little bit of a public battle over smallpox vaccinations um, as he was asserting that people should be vaccinated when um, others in in the area, clergymen and physicians said that they should not. And so he was 
exerting his superior medical authority in the public realm as a clergy person. As he talks about what should happen in the case of mental illness, he talks about prayer as a first response. First, for those who don't suffer, he said that they should offer prayers of thanks for their health and then prayers on behalf of those who suffered. He offers a number of physical treatments. And again, here he's culling uh, information that he finds around him. And he recommends anything from herbal remedies, St. John's wort, cooling drinks and meats. Uh, he does uh, bleeding is is part of the medical repertoire at this po- repertoire at this point, And he recommends that. And, and we might imagine that somebody who is uh, is manic and who is uh, who loses a significant portion of of their blood might calm down. And so the cause and effect here um, for some connection. He, he also has some fascinating suggestions, again, that he's pulling in from other sources, things like living swallows cut in two and laid on a shaved head. Um, I, I, it's harder there to imagine the, uh, the connection between right. change in action, but that's there. And, and he does give some allowance for, uh, in the case of melancholy kinds of, of treatments, um, that gives some hint of, of personal responsibility. So he says in the case of slothful Christians, they should be rebuked. So there's some uh, action or lack thereof that, uh, that, sh- that might be attended to in terms of personal responsibility. But again, in general, he said illness is wasted if it's not used for spiritual benefit. This whole study for him is trying to figure out how to make illness not be, not be wasted and to draw believers closer to God, make them attentive to God, God's will. And he does this, again, as a clergy person with superior medical knowledge, speaking into uh, a world where he views mental illness as simply one of the ailments that humans suffer. Excellent, excellent. So I, I really like the summary you, you gave us there. Um, and especially it kind of leads to this idea of, of occupation, um, because your, your following chapter is the shift away from the clergy person as kind of the, the expert uh, since your second chapter focuses on Benjamin Rush and has the wonderful title Christian vocation and the shape of the secular profession. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about Rush and how he represents a transition or a change in Protestant um, uh, relationships to mental illness. Sure. Absolutely. As I, as I looked at the history, it ended up in each period, there was a figure And because I was looking at Protestants, there was a Protestant figure who seemed to be attending in some way, shape or form to mental illness in a way that others around them weren't. And in the second period, that's Benjamin Rush. So Rush, who lived in the the revolutionary era, was a physician, a physician and uh, largely a Presbyterian. He had some other denominational leanings at points. And it was a physician animated by his faith and his belief in the goodness of God, a, a desire to be of use to society. That's the vocation piece in the title. And a fascinating guy, a statesman, a reformer, in addition to a physician, friends with the first presidents, with Jefferson, with Adams. He signed the Declaration of Independence, um, friends with Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin. He advocated for, for education, Dickinson College here in Pennsylvania. Um, owes its origins to Rush. And for him, he is thinking about mental illness as as a physician. It's an illness he observed in the world around him. Again, we find instances of it recorded in his journals. He talked about, for example, a clergyman who had been insane in a state of despair for years. And Rush, even though he was a statesman, engaged in political action, really worked primarily as a physician and not necessarily with the richest Americans, even though those were some of his um, some of his friends. He said his connections weren't good enough to be a physician to the richest Americans. Plus, he considered it to be a blessing to serve those in need. Rush also served as a as a teacher of medicine, a professor at the Philadelphia College of Physicians, and estimates are that he trained either directly or indirectly a large percentage of American physicians of that time. It was really at Russia's era that training of physicians started to happen in, in on North American, eventually American soil. He was curious about preventative medicine, gave advice to, uh, to soldiers that range from uh, the clothing they should wear, the food they should eat. 
And he was also interested in, in innovative cures. And here, bloodletting enters his, his repertoire as well. He has a specific interest, particularly as his, at the end of his career, in mental illness. He said there's a great pleasure in combating with success a violent bodily disease. But what he said is this pleasure compared to with, with that of restoring a fellow creature from the anguish and folly of madness, of reviving within him the knowledge of himself, his family, his friends, and his God. And so we see some particular interest in um, mental illness for him as, as a kind of uh, more difficult kind of suffering, something worth curing. As he talks about his understanding of mental illness, he, he adopts the definition of a colleague. He talks about mental illness as a false perception of the truth with conversation and actions that are contrary to right reason, contrary to established order. He names all sorts of evidence of mental illness, bodily pain, mental anguish, excessive sleep, the loss of interest in food and other people. And he documents throughout his journals uh, suicide and suicide attempts. He talks, for example, about a visit with a woman whose husband had had shot himself, dreading meeting his creditors. Creditors, And so uh, we see his observations, wide ranging acknowledgement of mental distress. And he pinpoints all of this mental distress, distress largely as dysfunction in the blood vessels. So problems in the vascular system. And that's really his primary understanding of the cause of mental illness. But he also says there can be contributing causes, things like falls, brain injuries, isolation, famine extreme hot and cold. And again, he's gathering the evidence kind of systematically that he sees and trying to draw assumptions. He also said there are there are cognitive predispositions that can be contributing causes, intense study of too many subjects at once and kind of excessive emotion, excessive joy, excessive anger or greed. He also talks about predisposing conditions in terms of dark hair, great wit. And in Christian countries, he says infidelity and atheism. So things that are contrary to the norm might cause mental distress. So he makes these observations. He's trying to understand mental illness. Um, and in this quest for understanding and in a hope to provide relief, near the end of his life, he ends up authoring uh, a medical volume about diseases of the mind. This takes place in 1812. It's a, it's a volume called Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon D Diseases of the Mind. And this is his work in systematizing these observations he's made throughout his career. And it's a volume that for Rush, each of these figures seems like they have some sort of personal as well as professional or vocational connection to mental illness. And in Rush's case, it's that of his son, his uh, journal from February of the year 1810, so just a couple years before he uh, authors this volume, says, This day my son John Rush arrived from New Orleans in a state of deep melancholy, brought on by killing a brother officer in the Navy. And that took place in a duel. And Rush of his son said neither the embraces nor tears of his parents, brothers, or sister could prevail upon him to speak to them. And Rush's son spent the next nearly three decades in the Pennsylvania hospital that 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 his father, that Rush himself helped form. Rush didn't talk. He talked about this in letters to, to Thomas Jefferson, but not publicly, perhaps indicating um, a reluctance to talk publicly about mental distress or perhaps just this particular interest. And so Rush has a, a Christian conviction to respond to suffering. This is central to him, a desire to make himself useful. And so as he did with physical ailments, he's going to talk about preventative measures, um, taking care of oneself in ways that can prevent some of those uh, predisposing conditions. He talks about treatments and in a couple of different veins. He talks about physical treatments. Uh, bloodletting here comes in as well. He he invents a tranquilizer chair, essentially a chair that um, spins the one who is suffering and around round in a way that makes blood rush to their head, which, again, we can imagine how that might change one's state of being. It uh, fell out of favor pretty quickly. 
<laughs> and Russia is also going to advocate for what comes to be known as moral treatment. And it's a little bit of a sound risks being a misnomer because it's not about correcting one's morals as thinking about a kind of holistic care. And so he is careful to think about the kind of environment that those who suffer live in clean, calm, restorative, holistic care. And he is going to talk about that as well. Um, and so he is his medical approach is happening at a time when medicine is beginning to professionalize. He is a religious man. He has these vocational convictions that we can see anchored in his religion. But he doesn't talk about illness at all in terms of sin. But as a as a physical and medical reality, he's looking for physical and biological causes. One of his contributions medically, of course, is to is to name mental illness as valid medical concerns. His volume about mental illness was is talked about as as really the first um, he's can be talked about as the father of, of psychiatry in terms of documenting for the first time and trying to systematize cause and cures. Um, and he's doing this work at a time that the, that science is solidifying. The rise of, the, of enlightenment thought is making supernatural explanations seem uh, less plausible to many. Certainly, this is an intellectual, Russia is an intellectual elite, um, but he is not He's not relying on the kind of spiritual ministrations that we see that we saw in Mather. And we'll, we'll see a little bit later in the story, folks coming back in to correct that. But, but Rush is taking a Christian vocation and attending to suffering in the world using his secular profession. Excellent. Excellent. And it's, it's interesting. You, you end on with him on that, that idea of um, profession, because in our, our you know, you, you've, your first two chapters are looking at these um, educated men. And then chapter three is uh, focusing on Dorothea Dix, who, I mean, she, she's educated, but I don't, she's not a, a minister or a medical doctor, I believe, right? Right. So, so Dorothea Dix, uh, who lived um, through much of the 19th century from 1802 to 1887, is a very different figure. So she's a woman. She is, uh, she is doing the work she will do as a, an educator, a reformal, reformer, a moral campaigner um, in a time well before women can vote. And so she has a kind of access to a number of public spaces, though, that is kind of remarkable. For Dix, uh, she saw mental illness as something that was causing suffering in the world around her and saw something she wanted to help relieve. Um, and it really took about four decades of Dix's life for her to find what she considered to be her true calling. Um, the story goes that she was walking through Boston, where where she lived and taught and heard a couple of men talking about the horrible conditions at at a local jail. And in, in, for some reason, the conversation struck a nerve, uh, captured her sympathies. She'd been feeling sort of guilty about her own self-centeredness. And this drew her in a sense that she had been neglecting her fellow citizens. She eventually started to teach Sunday school at a, at a local jail, the Middlesex County Jail. And the conditions she found when she visited um, sparked this uh, advocacy in her that lasted for the rest of her life and really um, for her solidified her sense of a God-given vocation and ended up bringing much more humane treatment for thousands of mentally ill Americans. So Dix was a, the daughter of a Methodist preacher. She found that that brand of religion to be a little bit too fiery, found her, her home in um, much more staid religious life in Boston, uh, Unitarian life, very well educated, uh, wrote books to, uh, to help educate children, taught. She was friends with some of Boston's most progressive civic and religious leaders. But it was really, again, this, uh, not her teaching, but her self-motivated work after she realized that people were suffering in public institutions uh, that, that brought her fame. So at, at the time that she was starting to discover this suffering, most dependent citizens um, no longer lived with families. That had been the case in the colonial era, but as public, that is work tended to move out of the, of the, the home into the public sphere, so did the care for 
for citizens in almshouses and poorhouses, and those were often not well maintained. There were there were some church-run institutions, particularly by Quakers, that offered a little bit better care in the case of mental illness. Um, but what Dix found, she spent a year traveling around Massachusetts as this work began, chronicling conditions, and she found conditions that horrified her. So mentally ill men and women starving, chained, filthy, lacking fresh air, naked, exposed to the elements and all kinds of weather. And she said, wondering what they did had done to be deserted by God. And so she started to document this, to, to write these reflections and did so in a way that reflected a kind of compassion about the tenacity of those who were suffering. She was amazed at their ability to survive not only their illness, but the conditions that she had found them in. And often earlier portrayals had de- had described the mad, as they would have been called, as beast-like. But she really wanted to use her work to draw pictures of real women and men, to call her audience to sympathize with them, to acknowledge their dignity, um, and to get those around her to act on behalf of these fellow creatures of God. And so just a couple of a, a year after uh, that trip around Massachusetts, she has gathered her her thoughts and encouraged by her friend, the Boston reformer, Samuel Howe. Dix ends up petitioning the Massachusetts legislature to, to expand a local hospital. And it's that presentation that launches her career as a public reformer. She said, I've come to present the strong claims of suffering humanity, to place before the legislature the condition of the miserable, the desolate, the outcast. And here she's speaking not just on her own behalf, but as she says, the advocate of helpless, forgotten, insane and idiotic men and women of being sunk to a condition from which the most unconcerned would start with real horror of beings wretched in our prisons and more wretched in our almshouses. And she calls on the Christian charity of those who she is speaking to um, urges them to act for their eternal and great reward, to to enter God's mission, hoping to help them commit to a sacred cause. And she's quite successful. Um, Shortly after this plea to the legislature, they they approved a $25,000 appropriation and $40,000 from an endowment to to enlarge the asylum. And she will continue this work um, across the country. So she travels, she writes, and it's it's estimated that in in the in the two years after this first trip, after this first presentation, she went over ten thousand miles. This is of course on horseback for her largely alone, visited something like three hundred jails, eighteen state prisons, five hundred poorhouses, chronicling this kind of work. And this will continue for her for for years and years. As she traveled and was mindful of the condition of those who suffered, she was much more interested in in cures for insanity, as she would have called it, than than causes. She said that she was asked whether she had investigated causes of insanity, and her response was, I have not. And when she did mention the source of mental distress, she tended to reflect what she was hearing from those physicians working in in asylums. These were often her friends. She deferred to their medical expertise. So while Cotton Mather is operating in this world where faith and medicine are working together, Rush is working in a case where his Christian convictions are fueling his um, vocation in a secular realm. Dix has has a similar kind of Christian vocation, but she is going to let the medical professionals be the medical medical professionals. She occasionally will weigh in and and talk about sort of disappointments and trials that seem to have prompted mental distress for someone, but but mostly um, doesn't mention that. She's also quite reluctant to uh, to turn to sin as an explanation for all mental illness and perhaps her observations shape some of that. And even when she thought that um, some someone's transgression may have caused their suffering, she didn't think that there should be any condemnation um, of them, in part because illness itself was 
was enough. And so she's she's going to urge compassion, have pity, she says, on those who, while they were supposed to to lie hid in secret sins, have have been scattered under a dark veil of forgetfulness. So she's going to have this great sympathy. So as I said, Dix traveled very widely and her advocacy spread public awareness and, and ended up bringing lasting change. And so she has a kind of influence that is remarkable by right? getting getting to talk to a state legislature, not just in Massachusetts, but in other places. She befriends young physicians who are exploring the possibility of, of working in in asylums, really sort of leading mental or medical institutions of the time. She's consulted in hiring decisions by hospital boards, and she operates as a kind of um, moral guardian in society that does let her exert this kind of influence both on state and federal legislatures, again, despite the fact that she is unable to vote. And it's as a woman, her, her gender let Dix approach men in power in a way that perhaps was not threatening. And because society, many in society assume that women had a kind of superior uh, repository of morality and virtue, she brings that kind of authority with her. So Dix is quite successful. Something like 30 institutions around the country are launched or expanded because of her help. She shapes public perception about the need of care. This is a time of very optimistic institution building, and her advocacy helps helps fund these kind of efforts. And so thinking about um, her success, if you will, as a reformer, she's she's quite successful in terms of launching institutions from the standpoint of the, the staying power of these good restorative institutions as they were set out to be. She's not quite as successful. Um, and, and that will be evident as we talk about, about the next figure. Right, right. And I, I like that you, you emphasize that her institution building, I, that was one thing I thought was particularly fascinating. So we've talked about uh, a member of the clergy, a medical doctor, an institution builder. And next we'll talk about, um, I think his name's, uh, Anton Bosen, who is a member of a of the clergy, who also has uh, medical training, I guess later on, um, but he has another kind of experience with mental illness that the first three people didn't. Right. So the next figure is Anton Boysen, so a Presbyterian clergyman who lived between 1876 and 1965, so just after the Civil War to the past the middle of the 20th century. In addition to being a Presbyterian clergyman, he's a psychiatric. He was a psychiatric patient, so he suffered. He was institutionalized, um, and at the same time, he studied religion, taught religion and psychology. So he taught at uh, Chicago Theological Seminary. And for him, mental illness, we get this firsthand perspective. So we we heard. I didn't mention with Dix, but in Dix, we see that she suffered. Um, some sort of breakdown. She had some fear of of being uh, mentally ill. But in Boysen, we find a kind of firsthand experience that is really going to shape his response. And so in that response, he has a real sense, given given that as a clergyman, brings to the table a sense that the church had a kind of role to play in care alongside medicine. So he's not assuming a primary or a solitary role for the church, but he he has he literally has a vision in one of his first episodes that he had broken an opening in the wall that separated medicine and religion. And he wanted to find a way for those two to work together to attend to this kind of suffering. And so perhaps because he was was mostly quite successful in navigating his own affliction, he gained a kind of confidence that he could remedy what he began to name as lapse attention on the part of Protestants to the suffering that mental distress had brought. The problem, he said, seems to me one of of great importance, not only because of the large number who are now suffering from mental ailments, but also because of its religious and psychological and philosophical aspects. And we hear his conviction in terms of vocation. This is after his first episode. I'm very sure he said that if I can make any contribution whatsoever to the problem of mental illness, it will be worth the cost. And he started um, while hospitalized for the first time, gathering data around him about what he saw um, happening 
around him in those who are suffering and said, my present purpose is to take as my problem, the one which I'm now confronted, the service of these unfortunates with I'm with those I'm surrounded. And so Boysen is going to talk about mental illnesses as a little known country. So a place visited by a minority of Americans, a place understood by even fewer. And so he wants to he wants to raise awareness and call the church, call clergy to action. He thinks about from his own observations of those hospitalized from his own experiences, two main causes of mental illness. There are organic causes. And here he talks about defects in brain tissue. So disorder in the nervous system, some disease in the blood. And he's going to talk about these organic causes as things that might be incurable. So with the rise of medical science, there are many illnesses in, in Boysen's era that are starting to be cures are effective for. And that's not happening in quite the same way um, in mental illness than, than in now in many ways. But he's going to say there are some physical causes, organic causes of mental illness that might be incurable. His insight is is around the the other kind. He's going to talk about functional causes. And so these are cases that he observes where there is no organic difficulty. The body is strong. The brain is in good working order. But what's what's going on is some kind of disorganization in the patient's world. And he, he names here things like death and disappointment and failure. And here he talks about these as being curable and curable in ways that religious ministrations are going to help him attend to. So in, in response to his ailment, to a sense of the causes of mental illness, Boysen is going to call for a, a kind of restoration of clerical and church authority in attending to mental maladies. Cotton Mather, these were part of the same poll, but we see both in, in Rush and in Dix this separation. Um, but Boysen is going to call for religious ministrations to sit side by side with medical ministrations because of these two kinds of causes of mental illness. And, and his work is going to cultivate, help cultivate a period of co- cooperation between religion and medicine. Um, still today, one of, one of Boysen's innovations uh, fits in clerical training in many, um, for many religious bodies, and that's clinical pastoral education, a firsthand study of human experience that happens. Often ministerial students spend um, time in hospitals in a very structured environment, learning um, as part of their training as clergy. As clergy. And, and that happened. Boysen started this in, in mental hospitals that he was connected to. And so he wants to not only equip clergy to respond well, he wants to enable medical professionals to understand that there are spiritual issues and spiritual treatments that um, that are appropriate in the case of some mental illnesses. So again, Boysen enters the story as a sufferer, a sufferer whose own experience causes him to critique both medical practice and church practice and does so in a way that that uh, that does engage that conversation in the period uh, in Boysen's adult life, the years around World War Two, we see this great, particularly with mainline Protestants, deep uh, deep conviction for advocacy on the part of those who suffer from mental illness, real attention to um, to state mental hospitals and Christian responsibility to make those good places. Because after after Dix's uh, launch of them, help launching them as curative institutions, they had grown uh, overcrowded um, and suffering from the kind of uh, lack of care and abuse that's often caricatured in in today's conversations, but particularly in popular culture at that time. So Boysen is an interesting figure for, for a number of reasons. Well, excellent. Actually, yeah, I found that that chat. I mean, I enjoyed your book in all, but I found that chapter to be especially fascinating to, to look at this man who, you know, was himself a sufferer. So you, it's interesting that the second chapter was of a, of a Christian physician and you, your last biography is also of a, of a Christian physician in a sense, uh, Carl Menninger. Right. Right, so Carl Menninger uh, lived from just before the turn of the of the 20th century to 1990, um, like Rush was uh, born as a as a Presbyterian, and had had similar vocational uh, inklings, I guess. So his his focus 
was to serve the world. And his particular focus was on the welfare of those who are afflicted with diseases of the mind. And he really was an advocate for mental health and the care of those who suffered for for nearly seven decades. And and he was influential in terms of his his work reached fellow psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, clergy, and the general public. So he wrote for women's magazines as well as writing medical textbook. He has kind of a uh, an amazingly wide reach. He has this Calvinist sense of vocation, scientific knowledge, deep compassion that all forms together to to animate his work as a physician and responding to suffering. And he ends up raising public awareness about the nature of mental illness, the need for proper treatment. And he, and he receives significant recognition um, along the way, including a, a Medal of Freedom granted to him by uh, pre- then-President Jimmy Carter in the early 1980s. Menninger's first exposure to the kind of suffering that, it, that accompanied mental illness came very early in his life. His father was a physician. His mother, out of her own religious conviction, often welcomed friends and family to stay with, with the family for extended periods of time. And many of those individuals, Menninger later reflected, suffered from mental distress. He also spent time um, after medical school in in an internship uh, in Kansas City and realized that he felt drawn to patients with neurological ills, many of them uh, derelicts brought to the hospital by police because they were unable to survive without assistance. So even as he's launching a new medical, a more general new medical career, he finds himself drawn to those with mental maladies. In 1999, he's done with, or 1919, he's done with medical school. He, he returns to the family home to Topeka to enter medical practice with his family. He and his father have a clinic that treats all kinds of ailments. But Carl Menninger is on the lookout, really, for those suffering with mental illnesses. Um, it is not something that was popular initially with those in Topeka. He wanted to, uh, to opt to launch what citizens called a maniac ward, which drew some public ire. But eventually the Menninger Clinic, it's, it's now uh, headquartered in Houston, but really became uh, a source of pride for Topeka, even though initially uh, Menninger had to bring people who suffered from mental ailments in, disguise them under different diagnoses. But in this, we can hear his, his compassion, his com- conviction for a particular kind of care. Mental illness was an issue for him because he thought that mentally ill Americans deserved good care. He said it was um, painful and paradoxical that in America, a rich, busy, idealistic, sympathetic, growing country, that the physically ill received more compassion than the mentally distressed, despite the fact that mental distress was often much worse. He said, let a man be taken to the hospital because he has a broken leg, crying out with pain when he tries to walk. And he'll be surrounded by nurses, physicians, and technicians. And within a few hours, his suffering eased and his legs so held that it began will, will begin to mend. But let a mind's, man's mind begin to wander or his memory fail. And he's likely to be moved without much urgency from the county jail to the wards of what has been called the asylum. And he says that, that few know, few care, and fewer do anything about it. And this injustice that he identifies is going to motivate his efforts. Manager assumes that mental illness occurs across a spectrum, a sense that all humans suffered from mental maladies at one time or another. And this is kind of a, this is a <coughs> something that each of these figures seem to name in, a, in their own way that, that all are susceptible to mental illness, all might suffer at some point. He talks about, um, he's obviously writing at a time when there are more scientific categorization of mental illness, but he gives a broader sense of two categories of mental sickness. First, he says, are uh, afflictions that cause anguish in those who suffer from them. So this might be depression or fear, uncontrollable anger, um, and a kind of anguish that could drive people frantic or drive people to drink. And he again names this as he's as he's seeing this manifested in pain and isolation and discouragement and ineffectiveness. And so there's a kind of mental 
ailment. He identifies that that affects sufferers, but he also says there's a kind of mental illness from which individuals may suffer, but the people around them suffer even more. And so here he's going to put things like vandalism or psychopathy or some kinds of criminality. So a, a mental abnormality of one that causes the suffering of the other. And Menninger, though a psychiatrist, is relatively reluctant to use the diagnostic labels of his era, in part because he fears that they're going to deepen stigma. He tells a story of a of a young woman home from college after some sort of episode and how much better it would be if she could simply go back to, to college and resume her studies without the label of a diagnostic label that would then follow her along. We we get here this sense that he is recognizing cultural stigma that is it is, has affixed itself even more deeply to mental illness in the 20th century, in part because of the shape of asylums um, and the lingering incurability of illness. And he's trying to fight against that. Managers also, as he thinks about causes of mental distress, trying to distance uh, public perception from some long held senses that um, sinfulness might be causing mental illness personal transgression or some kind of supernatural. So he, too, is is steering away from that kind of supernatural origins. So given given his understanding of mental illness, he is working to educate the public. He is working to treat clergy. I mean, to treat those who suffer. He's also um, in a similar but slightly different way, hoping that clergy play a role in tending to those who suffer. And so clergy, of course, had counseled parishioners for for centuries. But in Menninger's era, we see the new field of of pastoral counseling emerge as as clergy are starting to adopt scientific psychological techniques. And Menninger um, endorses this kind of pastoral counseling. He trains clergy at the Menninger Institution, serves on the board of of publications like the Journal of Pastoral Care and uh, here notes that he felt his mother would have been pleased with um, this kind of involvement with success. And and this is exercising kind of practical Christianity, a lived faith for Menninger. And so even though Menninger in in treatment does see some sort of role for clergy, unlike um, Boysen, certainly unlike Mather, Menninger is going to presume, and here he says that the injunction of the prophet Isaiah to comfort my people rests heavily upon psychiatrists. So though clergy could participate in the provision of care, he will reserve a more important role for medical professionals. And he recognizes and seems to have supported this continuing transfer of authority from clergy to psychiatrists of matters in mental health. He says it is not an accident that the highest social esteem once reserved for princes and royalty for high priests and prophets is now accorded to physicians. And so we see in that statement this this transfer of authority um, quite complete, in fact, in Menninger's eyes. But again, with deep, deep Christian conviction for him to offer care for those who suffer. Excellent. So you've given in your your book um, the biographies of of five Protestant Christians um, who have had to deal with uh, mental illness. And you've talked about the the different roles they've played and also um, how the historical context in which they've operated has has changed. And, you know, that that, that makes for a great work of history. This is a fascinating book. But as a um, as both a professor and a clergy person, um, you have this kind of you're, you're hoping to use this history to convince Protestant Christians to behave in a certain way today, to look at mental illness in a certain way today. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, my um, I am a, a seminary professor, an ordained clergy person, and a historian. And as I named as we were, were starting the conversation, my sense that in general, studying the past helps shed light on the present. And for those who today are in Christian communities, I think this particular study of the past uh, invites us to think about the present. So it can be really easy to assume that particular religious convictions generate an ex- expected set of responses. And that's sometimes the case. But with my work in this book in particular, I hope to demonstrate how it's much more complicated than that. So there are not just belief and practice, there are external factors, the shifting clerical authority, the rise of medicine, 
the interaction between religion and medicine, the emergence of state institutions, and this lingering social stigma that are going to shape the reaction of religious people as much as belief does. And so looking at this exploration of Protestants and mental illness demonstrates what appeared, what, what failed to appear on clerical and congregational agendas and, and invites a thought about then what, what appears and doesn't appear on congregational and Christian agendas today, invites conversation about how Christians do respond to suffering. And I spent some time in the final chapter inviting people to think about the possibility as, as hospitality, as one practice, really set of practices that might be extended in the, in the face of suffering and stigma that often accompanies mental illness. And, and suffering often creates a kind of isolation. And for me, this is why thinking through hospitality that tends to suffering in this case um, is, is one response and, and a kind of response that takes into account stigma um, and thinking about how stigma can shape action in in unintended ways. Um, here I rely on the, the work of the sociologist Irving Goffman, who has a, a 1960s text on stigma and the way it shapes relationships. He, he One of the categories he talks about in the face of stigma, there are sympathetic normals. And he talks about these as these individuals who know so much about those who are stigmatized that they can be in kind of normal relationship. And my sense here, this is really an invitation to Christian communities to think about what it would be to be a sympathetic normal. Those like the figures in the book who spend so much time with those who suffer or suffer themselves that they assume that the mental illness is something that may strike us all. And this is, um, again, inviting people to think about the kind of image of the body of Christ, a sense that if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer together, and then there is perhaps a response. And so I talk about hospitality, and not as, um, you know, tea and cookies served on the good side of China, but as a way to think about uh, welcome, welcoming those um, around us into a safe and open space, a kind of compassion, so not just sharing space together, but suffering with, rejoicing with the other a kind of incorporation into the life of the community. So where we are not just offering solidarity for those who suffer, but solidarity with a kind of full membership and then inviting people to think about hospitality um, as involving a kind of patience, chronic illness um, necessitates, a variety of forms necessitates a kind of patience, a tolerance for unpredictability that I think makes hospitality um, a possibility to attending to suffering. So those reflections take this history into account and say, thinking about the shape of the past, the complex realities, what what might it look like to be a Christian community in the face of, of this particular kind of suffering? Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much. And we've taken a, a, a lot of your time. Um, and uh, I think it's been it's been time well spent. I hope our listeners will will enjoy this interview. I, I love the when you when people are able to uh, look at history and then show how it is relevant, um, even as you know, 18th century history uh, in the case of Benjamin Rush and uh, Cotton Mather. Um, but we've taken a lot of your time in that exploration. I wonder now, though, if we could take a little bit more time and you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure, absolutely. So I am, as I've said a couple of times, I'm really interested in how belief and practice shape one another and what else shapes that intersection and particularly around suffering. And the, the shape of my next project really solidified. I knew there was a project on suffering coming, but um, while in an interfaith prayer service this past Summer, so following the, the tragic shootings at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. So I looked around a, a chapel filled with, filled to the brim with uh, members of my city of a variety of faith traditions. And I was really acutely aware that there was this communal lament, but shaped by, by very particular context. And even the, the Christians in the room brought very different postures toward this very specific, horrific event. And so I'm going to take a look at uh, how context has shaped experiences of and responses to suffering, as well as theological convictions. Um, 
and just I'll give you the sort of beginning and the end of the narrative. And there is lots to figure out in the beginning. So I've talked about Cotton Mather, someone who expected suffering. Suffering was simply part of human existence. And suffering was an invitation to turn toward God. The other end of the spectrum is uh, is somebody like Joel Osteen, who whose work often portrays suffering as failure, a failure of faith on the part of the one who suffers or the part of those who love them. And so the question is, how did we get from Cotton Mather to Joel Osteen? Suffering as expected, suffering as failure of faith. And there are many figures in between to talk about, but I think um, one of the things that this this next work will do is particularly talk about the racial um, environment in North America and how that particular context shapes the figures in between Mather and Osteen. Well, that, that sounds really fascinating. Um, I, I actually, just as an aside, was working on an article about how Korean uh, Christians have had to deal with the problem of suffering. Um, and curiously, a few interviews back, I interviewed Dr. Mark Scott okay. um, in his book, Pathways in Theodicy. Yes. But do you have contact with him? Or? I don't, but I um, I have listened to to some of his interview with you. Given I saw that title and it fits directly with my interest, and so you know the problem the problem of evil drives some people deeper into faith and drives some people away from faith, and that's part of this this curiosity for me. Right, right. Well, excellent. Well, hopefully, when you've got that done, if if you feel up to it, maybe we can have you on again. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you so much for making t- the time for us today, Heather. Um, you have a great day, and uh, of course, we're coming up tomorrow's Good Friday, and we're coming with Easter, so to you and our, our listeners, uh, um, I don't know, a good Good Friday, a fruitful Good Friday, and a, a happy Easter. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. This has been a interview for the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come again and listen soon.